Welcome to a very special Math of You event. Today, I'm going to be crossing over with The Invisible Ray, a podcast about movies by folks who like movies. Together, Andrew Isla, L. Collins, Jojo Seams, and I will discuss our cinematic memories before diving headlong into a discussion of 1948's The Red Shoes. As it is still the math of you, we will finish the show with a signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on the math of you. We join this conversation already in progress. For those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? I'm L. Collins, and I am primarily a writer. I uh, write for with Spandex on uprocks.com, where I write about pro wrestling, and I also do a weekly dreamcasting column for Sci-Fi Wire, where I cast imaginary movies, which I've been doing for like four years now, which is bananas. In addition to the Invisible Ray podcast, which will someday come out again, I also have a wrestling podcast called the Hard Times Podcast that comes out somewhat more regularly, by which I mean every once in a while. (laughs) Hi, I am Andrew Isla. I am another one of the hosts of the Invisible Ray, which, again, podcast with a very casual schedule, but we like doing it, and there will be more at some point. I am a writer and filmmaker. My big project right now is an animated puppet horror comedy called Obsidian National Forest at obsidiannationalforest.com. Season two has just begun. And in my daytime, I am an editor for a major entertainment clickbait website. An excellent animated puppet owl horror comedy. Thank you very much. Thank you. I like making it. I am Jojo Seams. I am the third host of lackadaisical film (laughs) discussion podcast, The Invisible Ray. I am also the producer slash part of the cast of Andrew's, I think, very excellent spooky owl puppet horror comedy series, Obsidian National Forest, available online to watch now. Also, mostly I draw things, especially comic books. I am the writer and artist of my current major project, my creator-owned book, The Makeshift Man, which is a thing. And sometimes I draw other things. Like Junkers. Yeah, for example. A frequently (laughs) cited example. And frequently occurring example. Great. And the reason I have asked all of you here today is I wanted to do a crossover with your lackadaisically scheduled podcast, The Invisible Ray. Because, listeners, for those of you who might not know, The Invisible Ray is a podcast where the three folks who I'm talking to right now will talk about movies, and they will be specifically movies that are capital I interesting. They may not always be great, although many of them are, 
but they are certainly interesting. I mean, off the top of my head, y'all have talked about Dune. Y'all have talked about Mystery Men, which made my day. We talked about Wings of Desire, uh, Night of the Hunter. What else? I'm, I'm, Dracula AD 1972. I can't forget that. <laughs> the Muppet Family Christmas. Muppet Family Christmas, which was a huge flashback to my childhood. And part of the reason I wanted to have all of you on for this crossover is that I recently, on a at the end of a time off from work, I got to go and see a film in the theater, an older film, uh, you know, it's just a casual 70 years old. And walking out of it, not only was I inspired to make more things and enjoy more things as this movie will do to you, but I also, in that moment, felt incredibly mad that there had not been an Invisible Ray episode on that movie. So like anyone on the internet, I put my shot out into the world. Like the Shang-Chi Master of Kung Fu phenomenon, I may have made it happen. So, in a little while, we are going to talk about 1948's The Red Shoes, which is an incredible movie. But before that, I wanted to go a little bit into you all's lives and talk about the cinema. Now, I have very specific memories about going to the cinema as a kid or going to the movies to see a thing. But I'd like to start with you, Andrew. What was the first time you went to the cinema that you can remember? Well, I know for a fact that the first time I went and saw a movie in a theater was The Little Mermaid. I think I would have been like a year and a half or two, and my mom has told me she took me to the theater, and that was the first time I went to a theater. I don't remember that. The first movie I remember seeing, there's kind of a period around like late 1991, early 92, where I definitely remember seeing some movies, and that would be like the earliest memories I have of going to a movie. And those include Beauty and the Beast, Hook, and Batman Returns. And I feel the need to list all three of them because I feel like that paints an interesting picture. <laughs> it certainly does. That kind of says a lot about where my tastes went from there. I and mean, those were all kind of around the same period. And I have very clear memories of like being in a theater as a child, seeing those. Beating the Beast, I remember because I remember having pink eye and not really being able to see the movie. <laughs> and it was only when we left the theater that my babysitter realized I had pink eye. So that stands out. Hook, I remember, like, getting really into sword fighting while we were watching it and, like, swinging my arm around in the aisle because it was otherwise kind of an empty theater. <laughs> and I remember that for some reason. You just picture an usher being, like, oh, a kid sword fighting again. <laughs> yeah. And Batman Returns, I remember, because a four-year-old was not ready for Batman Returns. <laughs> nor was that four-year-old's mother. <laughs> it's a lot. But also, Batman Returns is an introduction to a lot of concepts that became my favorite things in cinema after that. Like, you know, German Expressionism and Batman and Christopher Walken. Where's that gift from Community? This better not awaken anything in me. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of like a big collection of like my sort of earliest theater-going memories. So it went from there. I just want to mention that how much older I am than Andrew... <laughs> is that Batman Returns, I believe, was the first movie I went to with, like, a mixed-gender group of friends rather than a parent. Oh. So I, I would have been, like, I think 13? That was 92, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so I would have been 13, and I have a distinct memory of, like, the group of friends from school that I saw Batman Returns with. But as far as my earliest cinema memories, I know that the first movie I saw in the theater was The Fox and the Hound. Oh, no. I would have been about two, and I have no memory of that. Probably for the best, because I like that movie, but it's real sad at the end. 
It is. It is very much so. The first movie that I kind of remember going to see was Annie, the musical. But the first movie that I was like excited about, that I was like, we're going to see this movie because I want to see this movie. And then like, like being there in the theater and watching it happen was, of course, Return of the Jedi. Ah. which I would have been for, and I was very ready for it, but also kind <laughs> of not, because once I actually saw how big Jabba the Hutt was, he freaked me out a little, but I got over it. <laughs> Fair and reasonable. My parents were never big movie people or big go-out-to-the-theater people. The only ones I can really remember seeing early on were they would take us to whatever the big Disney animated movie of the year was. So I think the, the first one was maybe Beauty and the beast i don't really remember it i know i remember distinctly going to see aladdin that's kind of the first one i had any sorts of clear memories of we go to all of those i don't know if they my parents would never like you know andrew's mom would take him to the movies because she wanted to go see the movie so she would take andrew along with her my parents didn't do that i don't (laughs) i don't know if they ever cared to go out to the movies and we'll take the kids along and so after that i don't know there was some kind of school trip with friends that was to see jurassic park 2 the lost world (laughs) okay that one i remember because i was really excited because i somehow managed to sit next to the boy i had a crush on very choice so it was maybe like important for that more than anything else i know i really really wanted to see jurassic park i the, was the first one the first one i wanted like to five see five years before that. right where <laughs> it was like at the height of me being excited about dinosaurs i knew that this movie existed i specifically asked my parents to take me to see this movie i really wanted to see it and they refused they said that it would like no we're not gonna go see this it will be too scary for you. And I'm like, but I really want to go see dinosaurs eat people. <laughs> see, and then I have a funny parallel to that because, you know, JoJo's like a year and a half older than me, actually. But our childhoods were very different in a lot of ways, as you can probably already tell. And I remember Jurassic Park coming out and I wanted to see it, but also I was scared. And my parents were actually down to see it. And the three of us went to the theater together and we were in line to buy tickets at the box office, and I chickened out because I was a little afraid of a T-Rex. Fair. So my dad still really wanted to see Jurassic Park, Uh-oh. so he got a ticket to Jurassic Park, and my mom and I went to... There was an animated Snow White movie that was like by one of those little nothing studios in the early 90s that was really trying to be the next Disney, and none of them were. Oh, yes, that would be... I think that's Happily Ever After that had the Lady Dwarfs. Yeah, it might have been. I spoke about with Art Lee Vasquez on this very show. Okay, yeah, it might have, I just remember it was like 1993, yep. an animated Snow White movie that was like nothing. It was a blip. No one remembers it now. But I remember it's the movie I saw instead of going to Jurassic Park. And then a year later, I got the VHS, and it became a movie I was obsessed with. I would like to say, when I did see Jurassic Park, you know, the next year when it was on VHS and I saw it at a friend's house, I loved it, and I was very mad at my parents that they did not take me to see it, because I'm like... This is not too scary. This is good scary. I like how scary this is. I wish I saw it when it was bigger. (laughs) And then together, years later, like, you know, 25 years later, like it was 20 years later, because it was the 20th anniversary screening, when they re-released Jurassic Park in 3D, JoJo and I were then married and living in Fargo, and we went to go see it in the theater, and it was the same theater that I had been in line at 20 years earlier and chickened out. So I felt like a full circle sort of 
vindication there that when we both saw it on the big screen, it was the same theater that I chickened out at. And you finally saw it through. Yes. <laughs> the age that I was when Jurassic Park came out, I was like fully on board and loved it. And, you know, there obviously was no controversy about me seeing it. There was, however, a strong internal conflict between like, I still want a t-shirt with a Velociraptor on it, but it might not be cool anymore to like go to school with a t-shirt with a Velociraptor on it. Right. Whereas I, I feel like I've got, because I'm older than Andrew and Jojo, but not as old as Al. I'm kind of right slotted in between the three of you. And so when, well, first off, with, with the Batman comparison, Batman Forever was a movie that I went to when I was 13 with a mixed gender group of friends. Someone who was tangentially my girlfriend at the time, but we like didn't even kiss because it was that kind of, oh, we're going out sort of situation, which is very confusing. And I look back on it now and I'm like, what were we doing? But I went to see Batman Forever. However, when Jurassic Park came out, I was maybe 10. And it was, and my mom had decided that it was definitely too scary. And so, in a parental misstep, they allowed my babysitter to get me the book. Oh, no. Which is far more adult. Oh, the book's a lot scarier. Yeah. yeah. No, I read the book right after I got obsessed with the movie on VHS when I was like five or six or whatever. Uh-huh. And uh, I, I still distinctly remember being very upset by the paragraph that describes Dennis Nedry reaching down and feeling his own intestines spilling out of his guts. Yes. Oh, I yeah. remember that too yeah, from I childhood that. when yep. I also read the book. <laughs> yes. Or Henry Wu getting pounced on from the roof and yeah, getting disemboweled yeah. and eaten. And it's just like... This is full on. Everyone dies at the end. <laughs> right. It's like, it's really graphic. There are no, you know, like tasteful cutaways. Nuh-uh. Yeah. And in the movie, like a bunch of people just leave the island when it's, when they still can. Yeah. They just get slaughtered in the book. Oh yeah. I mean, Hammond dies at the end of the book. Malcolm dies and then comes back in the next book. <laughs> yes. Which I, which I was mad about when I was a kid. I was like, well. What? You can't do you can't do that? You were a kid who was really upset about like accuracy and continuity errors. Oh yes. <laughs> yes. You've told me this before. Okay, no, I was though. When when the hunchback of Notre Dame, the Disney movie came out, I was really mad at it because I was a weird kid who had already read the book. Of and was you mad were. that like that like everyone wasn't dead at the end <laughs> except for Fetus and the Goat. <laughs> I'm just picturing you, and I'm sorry, I'm hearing a Kathy Bates voice come out of you going, he never got off the cock-a-duty island. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Right. (laughs) Jurassic misery coming through the theaters. Well, it's weird because as I was kind of preparing for this episode, I realized that when I was a kid, my first movie that I remember going to see was Transformers the movie, which I think will tell you a lot about me. But then I look it up, and I see that that movie came out in 1986, and I would have been four. And I feel like that was too young for the, the like level of detail of memory that I have for that movie. But also, I knew that I went in knowing Transformers and loving Transformers, and I didn't really love Transformers until I was like, you know, starting to go to kindergarten, grade one kind of thing. So I wonder if it was rerun, so I can't really, like, you know, rationalize the timeline a bit. But I do distinctly remember, like, everyone talks about crying about the death of Optimus Prime. But tell you what, when Decepticons first board the shuttle, and they blow away four characters, and those characters have smoking holes in them, and their eyes turn red, and then their bodies turn gray, and they fall over, and they're dead. I remember turning to my mother and going, did, did Prowl just die? And my mom, without <laughs> realizing what she was saying, went, yeah, I guess. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, and like I've gone and I've I've since found like a perfect 
a frame by frame gif of that moment and just you know relived exactly how horrifying that was <laughs> so yeah movies where childhoods go to die it's true yes but i mean i also have some very strong memories of being like an early teenager i'm t- talking like maybe like 14 turning 15 there was a movie theater in vancouver on east hastings street in burnaby called uh, the dolphin theater and it had a big sign that said a theater near you so that they could say that a movie was coming to a theater near you that's clever isn't it genius that's, ge- that's genuinely clever. I love yeah. that. It's cute. Yeah, and the Dolphin Cinema was special because it was a second or third run cinema. And so every ticket was $2, no matter what the movie was. And they would usually have two movies at a time. And when the ticket price went up from $2 to $2.50, there was outrage. I'm just saying. But I would, and in a story that makes me sound like I was a gleeful urchin from the Andy Griffith show, I would take my dad's two-liter Pepsi bottles take them to the grocery store where they would give me 30 cents each for the bottle to return and get enough money to go to the movies from that because the tickets were only $2. I love this. <laughs> Precious. So I'm, I'm holding like two giant plastic bags filled with bottles. If I brought enough bottles, I could also buy like, you know, the little five cent candies in a little paper bag and take them into the movie with me in my coat pocket. So. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, that is some Andy Griffith show shit. Isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Precious urchin. <laughs> Except it was happening in a shitty neighborhood in Vancouver in like 1996. <laughs> <laughs> no, 94 even. God. So yeah, it's like I have so many memories of going to the movies, like getting one of my dad's friends to act as our parent so we could go see Pulp Fiction at the age of 14. <laughs> <laughs> was not ready for that movie. No, I would imagine not. Going to see First Night for the second time, you know, the Richard Gere and Sean Connery King Arthur movie. Going to see that for the second time. I forgot about that movie. And my friend getting bored and saying, let's just leave. And the concept of leaving a movie as it was playing had never occurred to me before. (laughs) Like, we just walked down to the end, walked out the emergency exit, and left. And I'm just like, what what do we do? We're in this weird in-between place now. (laughs) <laughs> the movie's still going but we're not there what do we do <laughs> it's like playing hooky from school playing hooky from a thing you paid for exactly it's like why would we do this I'm talking about like going to theaters as a kid like after we we moved away from Fargo North Dakota when I was in like first grade the city of North Dakota people have heard of and then we moved to Botno North Dakota which is a city no one's heard of unless you're one of the 2,000 people who's lived there. Then from first grade on, I grew up with this theater that was just a single screen that was only open Friday through Monday, and they would get one movie at a time. So it would be like current movies, but they'd be like a month or two behind. And that was it. Which led to an interesting combination of A, discovering movies that my mom loved, which fortunately I think my mom mostly has pretty good taste in movies, so that worked out. Or B, seeing a lot of movies that I would not have seen, but it's like, well, we want to go to a movie, so let's go to the one that's playing. (laughs) Does anything stand out as a particular example? Yeah. Let's see, like, in high school, I just saw a lot of garbage that I don't remember, like, any specific one, or it's like, well, I wouldn't have gone to this, but just kind of... Because it was, like, all I knew at that point. It was like, well, we'll go to the movie. There was a theater 80 miles away in Minot that we could drive to if we wanted to see something right away. But, you know, otherwise. Um, I think the first I'm sorry, movie... is there a place called Minoc, North Dakota? Is it named after the little things that stick to the landing gear of the Millennium no, Sorry, it's Minot with a T. Minot, not oh. Minoc. M-I-N-O-T. <laughs> That's less interesting, Andrew. I know, I'm sorry. I let's. You know what? No one will hear it. No one who knows about Minot is going to listen to this, so let's pretend it's Minoc. All right. But yeah, I remember the first movie I was, like, super obsessed with. Like, the movie that made me, like, think a lot about how movies get made was 
Jaws. Because it was one of my mom's favorite movies, and we had like a taped off TV version that we then upgraded to like a legit VHS, and then eventually upgraded to a DVD. Like it's just the movie I've always bought every time there's a new format. It's your cinematic white album, right? Like this is the reason I specifically remember this being like the first movie I was obsessed with was because I have this distinct memory of something I thought was totally normal at the time, which was I had seen a documentary about Jaws, and they were talking about like you know Spielberg telling the story about how you know the barrels replaced the robot that didn't work and how clever all that filmmaking was. And I remember telling my first grade teacher about that. Like, I went up to her one day and just like, so I saw this documentary about the movie Jaws and there was like this really cool scene with these barrels. And like, I don't know why I still remember that, but looking back, I just wonder how concerned my first grade teacher was about me that this was what I was bringing to her. Like, I, like, walked up to her desk during, like, question time and, like, wanted to tell her about this. <laughs> so, like, I know I definitely saw Jaws. Like, I don't remember my first time seeing it. It was, like, it was just always there. And it's, you know, again, that's a very cleverly made masterpiece of thriller filmmaking that holds up. And, you know, fortunately, that was my first favorite movie because I still love it. <laughs> there was a meme going around of that bit in Lilo and Stitch where Stitch is holding the book and he bounces it off Cobra Bubbles' head. Mm-hmm. And the captions are, over Cobra Bubbles, it says, an auntie who hasn't seen me since I was a baby. And then when he throws the book, it says, dinosaur facts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was me with like, here's how they made the barrel scene in Jaws to my first grade <laughs> teacher because I didn't have anyone else to talk to at the time. You've never told me that story. That's amazing. Didn't I? Oh, no. okay. Yeah. That's... <laughs> That's how I know I, I can this. be that's how I know I can be totally positive that that was like an early influence on me because I more than anything else I remember telling my first grade teacher about how cool jaws was. So I know <laughs> that was definitely that was like that was there first. And fortunately my mom was so into movies otherwise I don't know how I would have ended up, you know, loving movies so much in that dumb town with its one screen <laughs> that played nothing but garbage. <laughs> That's the thing. Getting a parent on your side to be like, I will go to the movies with you is such an important thing. Although it can backfire. Well, after my parents divorced, my mom would get us for the summer. And she would do a thing where she would take us to the movies. I think it was like almost like once a week over the course of a month. And we would see whatever's playing. And we would all get to choose what we wanted to see. That was how we got to see Star Trek VI without having seen any other of the Star Trek movies. And being incredibly confused at the Cold War... uh, Cold War metaphors and all these people we're supposed to know but we don't and why is this is so weird and then my sister choosing and we saw Beauty and the Beast and they got to me and 14 year old Lucas decided I should take my mom and my sister to see Under Siege 2 Dark Territory (laughs) (laughs) that's perfect and they got to see Steven Seagal cut someone's fingers off as he was hanging from a helicopter by sliding the door shut so he <laughs> fell into the fireball. So I'm sure that was a formative experience for my mother and older sister. Fantastic. <laughs> now, in my adult life, I have kind of treasured going to the movies. Where, you know, Since Hero's been born and I've become a parent, we've pretty much only been able to go and see what are essentially you know, the Marvel or Star Wars blockbusters or occasionally something that we just desperately want to see at the cinema. Most things we have to wait for because it involves driving up to about 40 minutes north of where we live to drop Hero off at Kimiko's parents' house, then like booking it to Macquarie Theater so we can be like, all right, 1030, Black Panther 2, please. And, you know, be the old people drinking coffee and eating pastries as we watch a Marvel movie. But 
every once in a while I will get a chance to go and see a movie on my own. Usually on a day off from work, I saw uh, Lobster Cops that way, which is a Chinese movie about four cops who have to go undercover as a lobster chef and like set up a restaurant, and the restaurant becomes popular and is frequented by the gangsters, so they have to then keep up the facade. It's a surprisingly good movie. That sounds delightful. Yeah, that sounds really fun. I want to see that. Yeah. I admit I was disappointed where you got to the part where it was clear that they're not going undercover as lobsters. Oh, same. I went on the no. same. I went on the same journey. I was like, "Cops who are lobsters." Oh no. Oh. Look, I bought a ticket entirely based on the title, so I presumed they were going to turn into <laughs> lobsters at one point. But just waiting for it. I was actually delighted by the story. <laughs> like it was legitimately funny. There was a like tender gay romance in the middle of it, which is like, wait, what? Nice. Like, it was one of those things where I was terrified it was going to be a gay panic joke where these two right. old men who become friends, one kind of puts his hand on the others, and the other looks shocked for a minute, and I was like, uh-oh, movie, you better not disappoint me now. And then by the next scene, they were just, like, treating each other as close friends, but then being very affectionate and touchy, and I'm like, oh my god, this is, huh. Of course, it turn, it all turns bad in the end because then the, the crime story has to be resolved. But in that moment, I was like, happily surprised unfortunately it has zero distribution in anywhere in an english language subtitled version but what i also got to do is in this recent time where i went and on a day where i got to see a ten dollar matinee of a movie that was older than my father that was the red shoes so who wants to be the one to say what the red shoes is and who's in it and what it's about l did you want to take that one sure the Red Shoes is a movie from 1948. It was directed by Emmerich Pressburger and Michael Powell, the Archers, as they're called, who I don't know if you all have seen any of their other movies, but I've only seen a few of them, but I'm a big fan of their work. The Red Shoes is inspired by slash kind of based on a Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale. And if you're not familiar with it, I'm sure everyone knows that when you hear the phrase Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale, what that means is a story about an innocent young girl dying. <laughs> Usually because of something that she did. Yeah. And it was her fault. And aren't they bad and stuff. There's a ballet in the middle of the movie that is a direct adaptation of the Hans Christian Andersen story. But the movie that's about it is about the ballerina and the company that made that ballet. And it is also kind of a loose adaptation of that story. It's about a ballerina who basically makes it big under the watchful eye of a ballet company owner who's, you know, a big deal in the ballet world and wants her to be his next big star. But she also falls in love with a young composer who writes the music for The Red Shoes. And she basically is put in a position where she has to choose between, like, being the greatest ballet dancer in the world or getting married and being a person. And it's a really hard choice, and ultimately she dies as a result. And it's great. It's really great. <laughs> it's really good. It's really great. It's so great. If someone told me, hey, do you want to go see a 70-year-old movie about ballet? I would normally say no. Oh, we wouldn't. Here <laughs> <laughs> you go. But this movie's really good. Also, just saying, Elle, I want to ask you, in your professional opinion, as someone who has been writing articles that cast properties, how has Anton Walbrook never been tapped to be Ra's al Ghul? <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> Because it's got the hair, the swooped back Neil Adams hair and everything. Uh, Anton Walbrook plays Boris Lermontov, who is the owner of the ballet and who is this kind of puppet master Svengali type who 
controls everything and is the decider of everything. And he spends a lot of time in some exceptional clothes. Yes. Yes. Including a dressing gown, which I swear is made out of a pair of church doors. Yeah, it's it's incredible. All the costumes are amazing. It's one of the movies where the whole thing is just so lush. Everything is taking place in these elaborate sets and with these amazing costumes that function as a part of the set. It's it's fantastic. Andrew was looking up how much this movie costs because we were watching it. We're like, this looks like like one of the most expensive movies ever made. Because every scene is taking place in a different lavish hotel room. There's so many unnecessary office. new rooms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's all new rooms or a stage with incredible stage backdrops. Or here will be like an outdoor scene and it's in this like amazing European villa or something. And it's, it's, yeah. We're going to go to Monte Carlo for 20 minutes. Yeah. Right. (laughs) I did do that research out of curiosity. And again, with the caveat that this is not at all an accurate way to judge anything, but just to kind of get a ballpark vague understanding, I I looked up the budget, which was like, I want to say it was like 500,000 pounds in 1948. Jesus. Yeah. I converted that to USD so that I would have kind of a better, you know, because of course when I think of movie budgets, you almost always hear them in US dollars. And then I ran them through a uh, inflation calculator. So again, this is like not at all a good scientific process, and I'm not saying this is very representative of anything, but it came out to like, if you were to process it into American dollars and then forward it 70 years to what it costs now, it only came out to like six and a half million. Jesus. Which is literally nothing in movie terms. <laughs> I don't know how they did that. <laughs> But again, different times, different country, different, yeah. Right. Episodes of television have cost less. The main cast of episodes of television have cost less. (laughs) We learned subsequently that apparently the financiers of this movie hated it and like it barely got any distribution in its native England at the time and it only kind of caught fire around the world and slowly came back to Britain in the years that followed. Right, that was the other thing we were saying is like, okay, either this movie was like completely like panned and you know crashed and burned at the time that it was released or it was like the biggest movie in the world there's no in between it's got this very citizen kane feel of like oh i've never seen a movie from this time feel this ahead of its time and do stuff that still feels fresh and exciting and there's no way anyone understood it in its moment (laughs) right which is not so much because of the scale of the film which was not necessarily unusual for 1948 it's in technicolor that was becoming a big thing, but because of how bold the narrative structure and the storytelling style it, it does is not in. it does not care about no. your feelings it doesn't care about your feelings <laughs> and it does not care to present exposition to the audience it's a thing where like you are you're sort of thrown in and you gotta sort of catch everything as you go along and in place of exposition you've got so many moments where you just have a tight close-up on somebody's face as they go through a bunch of nuanced little changes of expression, but don't say what they're feeling or why. There's a lot of that. A lot of it, yeah. Yeah. It's very stylistically bold for the time. One of my favorite things about it is that all of the people who dance ballet in this movie were ballet dancers. Yeah. Hell yeah. Unlike... Something like The Black Swan, they didn't like cast Hollywood, it wouldn't have been Hollywood because it was a British movie, but they didn't cast like the actors of the day and then like either teach them to dance ballet or use body doubles. They just found the ballet dancers 
that fit the parts they wanted and got them to act because you kind of have to do that as a ballet dancer anyway. And it worked out well. It worked yeah. out so well. Yeah, I mean, there's a bit at the beginning where we first meet Victoria Page. At one point, she like holds her hand out and you see the muscles across her shoulders just kind of jump for a second. And I remember like sitting back in the theater and going, okay, this one yeah. is jacked. I wonder <laughs> if she's a ballerina. And of course she was. Right. Yeah. And that's that's fantastic because then when they're filming the performances, they can really just film these actors actually doing some incredible world-class ballet performances without having to rely on cutting to make it look like these actors can dance at the caliber that they are dancing at. Like, you can just watch amazing dance performances. And you know you're in for something special right away during the opening credits because they have this whole different subsection where they have to credit everyone involved in the production specifically of the ballet sequences as if they are a different project tucked inside this movie. Right, yeah, they're really grandiose credits where there's, you know, like several different wardrobe credits, several different choreography credits, different music credits. A whole different composer. Yeah, where like different sequences were composed by someone different or conducted by somebody different and they're crediting those twice. One of the performers is credited twice the performer who plays Grisha. Oh, uh, Leonid Messine. Yeah, he's there with the cast, and then also he gets a second credit later as creating and performing the character of the shoemaker during the Red Shoes ballet segment of the Red Shoes movie. So he, he gets like double credits. Same with Robert Heltman, oh, who yes. is a famous ballet performer who plays Ivan. Yes. And also helped stage the ballet. And also right. 20 years later or so was the child catcher in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which is how he's most remembered. <laughs> yes. Today, he I think. Yeah, he, he, got, he got double credits. And also, is, is it just me? Can I just have a sidebar? Um, so Grisha and Ivan are a couple, right? Every, everyone accepts this? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I was like, like they turn up together and they're sniping at each other and they're like carrying breakfast. And I'm just like, okay, so they are the best and the worst, right? Everyone knows this. And so I'm <laughs> glad to hear that. There's like multiple scenes where like Grisha will be there and then Ivan will just like appear over his shoulder and they kind of look alike. Right. <laughs> they do. <laughs> Yeah, at the, at the beginning when those characters were first introduced, I w had it's like a I had a little bit of a struggle <laughs> trying to figure out which one was which and what their specific roles are. Because again, the movie is not concerned with exposition or really mm -hmm. introducing the characters. And for everyone's the most wearing part. different, unique costumes. Every yeah, time. You and always notice what they're wearing to the point. right. There's a, there's a bunch <laughs> of costume costume changes, and they're both these you know tall, skinny, dark haired ballet performers. And everything is spoken from the top of their heads as they toss their heads angrily. Yes, yes. yeah, very similar <laughs> mannerisms. And I think the thing that really pays off about having all of these, you know, hiring everyone who is like ballet experts and performers first and movie people second or not at all is like that and i'm sure we're going to talk about this a lot anyway but the big centerpiece ballet sequence part of what's so exciting about watching that and the thing i immediately thought watching it for the first time was like this is like if you got the best people in an art form that is not actually that much like cinema you know the ballet 
is this whole different thing where it's all this amazing art form that happens on a stage, and you successfully completely married that to the strengths of filmmaking, and it's this whole, like, it becomes a whole different art form where it's like, it's everything that works about movies as art and everything that works about ballet as art making something entirely new. It's not like a ballet scene in a movie, It's nor is it just ballet live. It's like a whole different thing. I completely agree. It's like how the special effects come into it and the staging and all that. Uh, I wanted to ask, because I know, El, you've been involved in a lot of theater, as have I. Uh, Andrew and Jojo, are you, have you folks been involved in any kind of like theater production or acting and stuff? I don't actually know. I was very involved in community theater and in high school drama class throughout, like, from, like, middle school until I graduated high school. We had a small but but very devoted community theater in our little town, and I have a lot of fond, formative memories of performing in, you know, the kind of standard musical that rural communities get to do, like, you know, Oliver and Guys and Dolls we did, My Fair Lady. So not much in common with, like, edgy artistic ballet, but, you know, I do, I do have a lot of mm-hmm. that, you know, memory of being on the stage. But not, again, okay. not for, like, the 15 years since then. Right. I wanted to do some acting when I was in high school, but my parents decided that it was not worth transporting me to and from any kind of after-school practices to be in, you know, the high school play. I got to do one, like, a summer program performance one year in a production of The Music Man, which was awesome. I was Eulalie McKechnie Shin. Um, (laughs) And I was very good at it. I was enthusiastic about it. I did have some ballet lessons when I was a tiny child. I hated it. I wanted to do I wanted to do karate instead. So like I finally talked my parents into letting me quit ballet and do karate instead. But I did a year or two of ballet lessons when I was a small. Something that I identified with a lot in this movie at the very beginning of the movie when there's like the student section at the ballet. Oh, and this, the, that's uh, so good. I love this scene so much. Yes, please continue. The tension between the like ballet students and the music students because where i went to theater school like their theater and dance was one department there was a department of theater and dance and there was a department of music within the college of performing arts and like i remember just that like wall of like you don't get us and we don't get you even though by all rights we should be very similar Yeah, I likened it to going to a Marvel movie now, and there's the people who are here because it's a comic book, and there are people who are here because it's a big movie. Oh, well, what are you here for? This person? Ah, never heard of them. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very much the kind of conversation you overhear these days when someone is explaining who Malekith is <laughs> behind you in the theater. Yeah. Who's that guy? Well, he's got sort of half a face, and he's a real piece of shit. (laughs) Even to the point of where, like, young Julian, as a student, they've brought sandwiches, and he tips the tomato off his sandwich into the crowd below. And I'm like, oh, you're the worst. (laughs) He really is. But yeah, speaking of small changes to, like, facial acting... What happens in that early scene is they go to see the uh, the ballet that their professor has written the book for. And so they want to hear their professor's music. And you get to see, as the music starts, after everyone's been so excited for it to start, you get to see Julian realize that his professor has ripped off a bunch of his music, several pieces, and glommed them together into one. And watching that change on his face from, I'm excited, to, I'm confused, 
to wait i recognize that and then when it hits him just the the sort of tranquil anger as it sits on his face and then eventually he has to leave right and he and he was the most excited he was the one who was like pointing out his professor's name to these other students and being like this is a big deal and kind of like leading these big cheers when they see the professor go and sit in his box and mm. yeah that transformation that comes over him it's it's really good yeah as he realizes what's happened and it's only kind of very slowly rolled out to us watching the movie of what it is he's reacting to from that writes a series of angry letters which he immediately wants back because <laughs> who hasn't dashed off an angry email and then immediately attempted the recall button? <laughs> he writes to Boris Lermontov, who has put on the show, and then he turns up at Boris's breakfast when he is wearing this incredible dressing gown. And eating an incredible breakfast. And having 15 rock melons. Yes. Oh, so good. A sumptuous breakfast put on by his butler. It's It's amazing. It's so amazing. It's it's like a really lavish, like, 16th century painting the way that, of what a breakfast is. In a hotel room the size of a ballroom. Yeah. The way that you know that, or one of the ways, I should say, that you know that Boris Lermontov is a gay character in a movie in 1948 is that... Are you going to talk about his tea? Is that he constantly <laughs> surrounds himself with nothing but the most beautiful and lavish things, and none of it brings him joy. it is his due but you're right it never puts him over the top we had to pause the film and rewind (laughs) and watch it again because we started yelling about the way he drinks i'm not sure if it's coffee or tea but he picks up a sugar cube dunks it in the cup eats the whole sugar cube and then takes a sip of the drink after it and it's one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in my life I said immediately it's like the scene in Get Out where she's eating the Fruit Loops by dunking them in milk and eating them one at a time it's that same bit of characterization of like this innocent way of eating food weird that makes you feel like this person is not quite human yeah (laughs) and there's so much interplay where he's asked Julian in and he's listening to him And then he asked Julian to play the piano as kind of like a test to be like, all right, well, let's hear how good you are. Are you a composer? Are you actually? And he listens to a bit and he kind of, and while he's doing that, he's eating his breakfast and you see Julian playing in this, like, I've got a moment. I've got a moment to show how good I am. And so he shows off and he plays a bit and he starts to explain, I'm thinking of putting it to an opera. I'm trying to do it like this. And then you're just hearing the noises of this incredible breakfast being consumed. (laughs) And Julian gets so angry that he stops. And then Boris immediately goes, why did you stop? I was actually starting to enjoy it. It was a little bit interesting. And again, that interplay of like rage, but also, you know, I've just been approved of, but also I'm still mad. And it's just, there's so much going on. It's this very weird, very polite battle between two characters who exist as nothing but arrogance and hubris. Yeah. Yes. And there's a great line where Boris basically tells him, like, he pays him off by giving him a job as an orchestra coach, as kind of like his foot in the door. And he says something to the effect of, it's worth remembering that it is much more disheartening to have to steal than to be stolen from. Yeah. And while that's true, it's also like, hey, shut up. Yeah. Maybe if you let this go, I'll get you in the door. And Boris, throughout the movie, will kind of bring someone up, only to immediately put a ceiling or a leash on that rise. Like, you yes. see it happen constantly throughout, where it's like, yes, you're great and you're special, but remember your place. 
Right. It's always, you may have something, but it is I who recognized anything that there is in you. Therefore, I'm better mm. than you. And very much, you will only have a chance to be great through me. So always remember that and don't cross me. That's the main driving force and meaning of this movie is this director of this ballet company with an incredible need to control everyone around him under well the reasoning that he's giving is that he must force everyone to be great that he's going to allow all of these great artists reach their full potential and it will only happen if they follow everything that he says according to his need for them to be nothing but their art at all times, yeah. according to yeah. what, what he wants. This is the thing that, of course, is also what's going on with Vicky Page, the ballerina, most prominently in the film, is the way that he needs to control her. I mean, with Julian, like, he gives Julian a chance to practice with the full orchestra, and Julian immediately attempts to play the opera that had been stolen from him and correct stuff. And he has them all come in two hours early to do it. While Boris listens and he goes, yeah, okay, yeah, he's fixed it. That is his. Also, by the way, you had the whole orchestra come in. We're going to have to pay them for that. You know that, right? Like, how dare you? Exactly. And it's like, it gets to this thing, and this is why I asked whether you folks had done theater. This movie is both incredibly romantic about ballet and theater as a whole and what it can create but also incredibly down to earth about the nuts and bolts of making a performance yes yeah yeah any situation where someone is having a moment of beauty or transcendence there will be someone sweeping the stage or cleaning the seats or practicing or moving props around like there's even a scene earlier on where i think it's irina who's the former prima ballerina who gets turfed because Boris can't stand that she gets married. Right. Where she's performing, and as she's coming off the stage, the framing of the shot is such where it's sort of a diagonal, like the the wings of the stage is diagonal across the screen. And you see her taking her bows in the upper left corner. And in the entire lower third to the right of the screen, you have this wave of other ballerinas dressed exactly like her. Yeah. And they are literally waiting in the wings for her to leave. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The movie is very romantic, but what it's about is we all have these ideas of what great art is. What is the cost of that art? And the movie makes very, very clear that the mistake is in forgetting that any performance like this is a collaboration between many great people who are all giving it their all and not about a lone genius. This is Lemontov's great mistake, and this is why Vicky Page ends up dying at the end, is because Lemontov makes this mistake, and uh, Julian makes this mistake. They both make this mistake where they're fighting over her, and she's like, yeah. fuck you both, I'm um, dead. <laughs> <laughs> Can I talk about how I came to this movie for a minute? And that, which will sort of also relate to the themes of the movie, yes. as I understand them. Please go ahead, yeah. So the first time I watched this movie was when I was in grad school studying film theory, I really wanted to focus on queer theory and film, but there wasn't like a full course on that. Like, you know, as you can imagine, this was like, let's see, I started grad school in 2009. So, you know, this was 
merely a decade ago. And so like every class had some queer theory in it. And there was like a specific class in queer theory offered in the art department, but there wasn't like a class on like queer readings of films specifically. So I talked to my mentor about this kind of issue that I really wanted to get into this. And so he basically instructed me in a um, independent study over the summer where he just like told me what to read and what to watch to like get a background in queer theory and film. And that's my origin story. If you were wondering (laughs) one of the books that he gave me, which I I still have, and I have it in front of me because I want to like give people credit where it's due is a book called outtakes essays on queer theory and film. It's edited by Ellis Hansen. My mentor, whose name was Louis George Schwartz, basically gave me this book and said, look at the essay, find what movie the essay is about, watch that movie, then read the essay as you go through this book. And one of the essays in the book is by Alexander Doty, who's one of my favorite queer critics of the past. And the essay is The Queer Esthete, The Diva, and The Red Shoes. That's a great title. It is. I have not reread the essay, so it's been close to 10 years since I read it. But as I recall, basically the point is that Lamentoff is obviously a queer figure. And he's not... There's no part of Lamentoff that wants to fuck Vicky Page. Right. But he still wants to use her for her body. Yes. Mm-hmm. What he wants is to use that body to create his art. Yes. And ultimately, this is a story of these two men fighting over ownership of this woman... But, like, one of them wants to have a heterosexual marriage with her, and the other one wants to make her into art, because that's what he does. And there's a real, you know, the way that Boris is portrayed in the movie, like, nowadays, people might look at him, people younger than me, and say, oh, like, maybe he's asexual. But no, like, he's a gay dude. But in a 1948 world, our understanding of that, you know, in the the homophobic culture of the time, is that, like... He doesn't get to have love in the same way that Julian and Vicky get to have love. Like, that's closed off to him. Not unlike Dr. Pretorius in The Bride of Frankenstein. He doesn't get to create life in the bedroom. He creates life on the stage. So he has this intense jealousy, not just of Julian's hold over Vicky, but over like the fact that they get to lead these satisfying lives and all he knows to do is to make beautiful art and he feels like he needs Vicky to do it. Yeah, totally. And even contrasting his relationship with Vicky and Julian's, even in the way they interact in their art, for all that Julian has the moments where he will be like, damn it, dance to the song the way I play it. But then he will immediately walk that back and go, no, actually you were right. Dance however you want. I'll make the music fit. It's kind of a, back-and-forth collaborative thing, whereas Lermontov is very much above everything that's happening in the company. There's many, many scenes where he sort of slowly and stillly walks through a scene of chaos, be it backstage or in his office where he's standing on the phone as 15 people sort his mail and try and hand him things as he is having, you know, a fairly genteel conversation in French on the phone. And people keep trying to hand him stuff and he keeps shooing them away. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Yeah, he's a character who is absolutely not an asexual character, but I think he's a character who wishes that he was. He's, he's got a kind of <laughs> desperate need to sublimate 
all of his energies into art, and he wants to insist that everyone else does the same. There's absolutely a thing going on of his anger at the former prima ballerina, Irina, for daring to go off and get married, and as he sees it, betray them. Everyone else in the company, when she announces that she's engaged, they all rush to congratulate her on her happiness, and he leaves the room. And she's, like, heartbroken over it. And that he is terrified that this is going to happen again with his new prima ballerina, Vicky. And he's working so hard to make that not happen and to insist that she be like him. Yeah. To see him as a mentor for how to conduct yourself. Because Irina's always late and stuff. And so, right. like, she'll sleep in. And as Grisha tells her, only 43 minutes late. Now we can begin. Yeah, Grisha kids her about that, but, you know, is very affectionate towards her. You know, and, like, jokingly calls her, my little horror. You know, it's great. <laughs> so Lermontov is, like, so afraid that that is going to happen again with Vicky. And also that that's going to happen with Julian. This guy that he's also feels that he has made this person who they are. You know, this guy was a student and I plucked him from nothing and recognized how great he is and have made him the musical director of my great celebrated ballet company. And he owes me everything. And it's my will that he should be following. The same with Julian, the same with Vicky and there's such an anger that he has at the two of them that they want to have this relationship between the two of them that does not involve him and his art. A kind of jealousy that's going on, both from a perspective on sexuality specifically, like sexual orientation specifically, also the need of an artist to exert control the need of like a white male artist who is in charge of things to always be the guy who's in charge of things and to be the genius who is the originator of all of this by the way just as a matter of trivia at least anton volbrook who plays lermontov and robert heltman who plays ivan were both gay in real life, not with each other that we know of, but individually. Leonid uh, Bassin, who plays Grisha, we would probably understand as bisexual in today's terms. He definitely had affairs with women and married women and loved women, but also at the very least definitely had an affair with his male ballet mentor. All right. Actually, should we take a, a sidebar and just, hey, Jojo, you want to talk about Grisha? I love him. He's he's the best part of this movie. I adore him. I watch this movie. I want to draw so much fan art. I want you to draw so much fan art. He's so good. <laughs> yeah, we should say on the topic of like how we first came to this movie, as we have been sporadically cutting back to with each of us, this is a movie we've been intending to watch for a long, long time. We've owned it for like six years. <laughs> And as we tend to do with important movies that we know we're going to love and, like, be inspired by, it kind of kept waiting for a moment to, like, dedicate to putting it on. And that kept not happening until, you know, a few days ago when we scheduled this podcast. We were like, yes, we're finally going to make an excuse to do nothing else for an evening and just focus on this movie. Yes, thank you both for, like, being the catalyst for us finally dedicating a whole evening to 
just you know, we're just going to put on this movie that we've never seen before in order to feel a whole bunch of feelings and not be able to do anything else this day. Yeah. We tend to do this a lot with <laughs> particularly movies that are in the Criterion Collection because, obviously, everything in the Criterion Collection is some degree of important, whatever that means to you. That's their whole thing. There's all kinds of different movies, different scales, different whatever, different genres. But, like, with the way where it's, like, those movies, you know, they have the set price point, and they're usually very expensive, except when they go half price, which they do a few times a year. So, like, when it comes to specifically Criterion releases, we tend to, like, stock up when they're half price, and then they either become things that we watch over and over again because they're so inspiring, or we don't get around to them forever because it's like, well, this is going to be such a big deal, we need to find the right moment, and sometimes they sit on the shelf for years at a time. (laughs) And this was one of those finally watched it two nights ago and we're very excited about it but now the seal is broken so now i can watch it over and over again exactly that's how it works and so you get to marvel at grisha after this incredible performance going up to vicky and going i who have seen the great pavlova dance i will tell you that you were not bad (laughs) yes i know i kid i kid you were in fact good (laughs) it's beautiful yes Yes. So yeah, like we spent we spent half the movie just like kind of cussing at the screen of like, fuck, did that? What? Wow, it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it was great that we were watching this for the first time together, together alone, alone at home instead of out in the theater, so we could just, just cuss at the screen a whole we bunch. We occasionally just yelled at it because we were so into it. Sometimes it was cussing. Sometimes it was just sort of syllables, like nonsense syllables. We were just shouting at the screen. There's a lot of that. Yep, it's very good for that. On the subject of cursing, this movie has what I believe to be one of the great unspoken motherfuckers in cinematic history, which is at (laughs) Grisha's birthday party. When, first of all, everyone here knows Lermontov. They saw what happened with Irina, and it's really Ivan's fault, that little bitch. (laughs) Where he just is like, don't you see who else is missing? And you see that Sergey, uh, uh-huh. the, the old designer who's there, like, he knows. Like, these are things we don't tell Boris. Like, what, right. what the fuck are you doing? But everyone else just... Sergey is the smartest guy in the film. Like, he just wants to show oh, up, yeah. be amazing at his job, and, like, go home. And he's always, like, so yeah. professional the way no one else is in this movie. But nevertheless, they reveal that Vicky and Julian are in a relationship and there's just a close-in shot of Lermontov's face and you just see him like, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. And then it's so funny the way, what it cuts to is the reveal of where Vicky and Julian are. And we were laughing like, oh yeah, it's not really a bedroom scene. No censors could get mad at them for this scene, but they're like, it's a bedroom scene except that they're in a, in a, yeah, carriage. It was, in a carriage. It was a brilliant workaround where you get this visual and most of the scene is played in this tight close-up of the two of them huddled up in, the in bed in the dark. In the moonlight, in e- each other's arms. Except the establishing shot makes it clear they're just in the back of a carriage. Although the carriage driver has fallen asleep right. Right, and the, the horses carriage. are in fact picking their own way. But then the entire right. the entire like emotional point of the scene takes place in this tight close-up of these two people lying on pillows with their like, you know, heads swaddled in each other's necks and it's just straight up like you know it's a post-coital scene in every way except well the establishment yeah. shot told you it's not so it's fine it's a brilliant workaround for how censorship yeah. worked at the time right this is like right at the end of the haste code isn't it it's a little after that but yeah it's definitely at a time okay. where you could not 
show two people sharing a bed on the screen. And I mean, I know the BBFC. Well, I mean, yeah, they have two single beds. And then there's, you know, it's right. it, it was British, so the BBFC was a different thing. But the Moors were all kind of the same. Right. Like, it, it was it was yeah. a very conservative time. Yes. In, you know. In media, they were so. definitely getting away with some things in a way that did not feel like they were getting away with some things. Right, brilliant. Speaking of Grisha's birthday party, wasn't it nice of him to have his birthday party in a Caravaggio painting? Yes, <laughs> it sh- oh, it sure was. Because everything is just. It comes off the water with the gondola. The camera follows the gondola along, and we see these little, like, twinkling fairy lights. And I swear, those and the tabletop candles are almost the whole lighting of the scene. It's like watching an entire scene drenched in velvet. It's so good. It's so good. It is. Also, Grisha has a bottle of wine as big as himself. (laughs) And it says, Chateau Grisha. Chateau Grisha. (laughs) Yeah, speaking of, like, some of the lighting, later in the movie, when Julian's fired and given his severance package... And Vicky quits in protest. Lermontov is on the way out, and he tells Grisha, stop rehearsing that, we're not doing that. And Grisha cracks it and is angry with him for the first time in the film and says, we are two weeks into rehearsals, this entire company. And because it's Grisha, the spotlight follows him around the stage as he has his dramatic (laughs) resignation because there's no such thing as too extra when you are Grisha Lubov. And he quits, and it's the first time in the film where someone has basically told Boris where to go, because, hey, by the way, this is everyone's life. This isn't just yours. And in response to that, you get Boris sitting in his one of his many palatial hotel rooms, where he is sitting in the dark, smoking, in the single beam of moonlight that is hitting his fainting couch that he is lying upon, and... My God, the image of that. Also, yeah. the Eiffel Tower is out the window. Yeah, Of course, right. of course. How else would you know you're in Paris? Yeah, it cuts to that scene, and I'm like, oh my God, he's just, now he's just full on a Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> See, my, my thought was that bit in one of the middle Sandman books where Dream has been dumped. And so because he is in the dreaming where he can create whatever he wants, he creates a balcony and a rainstorm so he can stand on the balcony and stare moodily into the rainstorm and be (laughs) rained on and be sad. And just both the book and the reader appreciates you are doing this to yourself and you know exactly what you're doing. My God. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It's very much a choice to be as dramatic as possible. Also, this movie appears to be about Victoria Page and her relationship with Julian Craster. But when she leaves the company to be with Julian, the movie follows Boris. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, there are a couple of Vicky and Julian scenes, but largely the movie sticks with Lermontov when they go their separate ways, which I think is an interesting choice. At least one of those, you know... Vicky Julian scene, the one where, you know, we see that they have the two beds and all of that, might be a view of Boris's imagination, as Andrew pointed out when we were watching it. Uh, yeah. Like, yeah, it, because the, the way the way the, the cutting is happening suggests that this might be his imagining of their life together. It might not be literal. Yeah, that scene where you know it's it's nighttime and she gets up and goes to the shoes in the drawer. That scene is bookended by the same scene of Boris sitting alone stewing oh you're right so like i kind of read it as like we cut from him stewing in his imagination to this scene which is kind of you know heightened in its lighting and everything and then back to boris still stewing and it's like well that could be really happening and we cut to them or it could be 
his imagining of what she's doing right now with him and how he imagines she must be yearning to return. Especially because, as we pointed out, this movie has already gotten away with showing the young lovers all cuddled up in what reads as a post-coital scene. So this, this scene where they are in two separate beds, like a 50s sitcom, further reads into that sort of the repressed sexuality and imagining of what heterosexual relationships are that we previously discussed about Lermontov. Right. Yeah, that's just how Boris thinks marriage works. Right. Right. And that yeah. scene, it looks so much like set dressing that you would see on a yeah. stage. There's a, a, oh, a, a really look clever. to yeah. it that's very stagey. And yeah, it's one of the, and also that Julian goes from being in bed asleep to suddenly playing a grand piano with an entire candelabra of candles like he's Liberace. Yeah. Yeah. So that Vicky can walk up to him and make comments about his new work and developing his genius. It makes total sense if you think of it as, oh, this is how Boris imagines their life will be like. Yeah. And it's funny because in the lead up to this, I watched it once in the theater, I watched it once at home, and I told myself I am not going to note this movie to death because, one, it's extremely long, and I would be here all fucking day. But also, I know, as I rewatched it, that there was, like you were saying earlier, Andrew, is like this movie doesn't tell you anything. It expects you to know things. So, for example, after the great performance of The Red Shoes, you see Vicky go on and play a series of different shows. She's in Swan Lake. She's in Les Sylphides. She's in La Boutique Fantasque. She's in Giselle. Right. In a quick montage. Yeah. Yeah, and like even the soundtrack refers to that track as Limentoff remembers Vicky's great roles. <laughs> and these are all very technically difficult and sort of show-stopping ballet numbers. And so you get a little montage of the one bit that everybody knows from Swan Lake and then all the others. But what I found, and it hit me like a ton of bricks on the rewatch, is that every one of those is emblematic of something in the story of this movie. I mean, you've got Swan Lake and it's doomed love. You've got Les Sylphides, which is entirely dance with no plot, so it's what Vicky wants. You've got La Boutique Fantasque, which is about a toy maker whose soldier toy and doll toy fall in love, and <laughs> he separates them. And then when an interloper comes in, all the dolls fight for the toy maker, and they all return to the toy maker, and everything's great again at the end because they knew their love was foolish. I mean, there's even a scene where she is playing a clockwork doll. And Grisha is there as a toy maker showing her how to move. And I'm like, okay. Like, literally everything in this movie is telling the story of this movie. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a beautiful blend of not spelling out what it's saying, but also not being in any way subtle somehow at the same time. <laughs> it's, it's something that I was talking to Brett White recently about some of the jokes in MST3K, where it's like, for a lot of people... This is absolutely nothing, and no one will get it. But if you got it, oh my god, it's like an arrow straight to your heart, because that's your language. So if you knew ballet, you could look at that and go, oh, I know exactly what's going on. Yes. By the way, just aesthetically, with my particular collection of performance backgrounds and interests, that scene of Vicky as the clockwork doll is one of my favorite visual moments in the movie. Yeah, it's, uh, it's so great. It's really striking, the it's costumes so and makeup for that one little bit that we see. Yeah. So can we all agree that... So, okay, Vicky goes back to be in the red shoes again in Monte Carlo, which, because everything must be dramatic. Because Boris bought the opera from... Sorry, the ballet from Julian. Because yes. he's like, you produce this work for hire. <laughs> Comics. And, 
he said, I own this and I'm never showing it because Vicky won't come back to me. And the way he wins her back is he's like, I will take this out of mothballs again if you come back to me. Right. Because everything must be as dramatic as possible. The new production of The Red Shoes is premiering on, in Monte Carlo on the same night as Julian's new opera is premiering in London. And the, the point that I, <laughs> that I wanted to get to is like, can we all agree that the moment when Julian shows up in Vicky's dressing room on that night is the moment that Julian becomes the asshole. Yeah. 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 Also, he's wearing a very bad coat. Also true. Yeah. I mean, he was he was always kind of a son of a bitch, but yeah, this is the moment yeah. he becomes the asshole. And he's the asshole specifically because he thinks he's doing the right thing here. I'm doing the romantic thing. Right. I'm running from my show to her show because she's more important. But also, dude, you're fucking this up real bad. Yeah. Very capital G good guy. Movie. Yeah. But also, he's the composer, so he can run away from his show, and that show still happens, and he still gets credit for it. Yeah. Yes. It's not the yeah. same for her. That's a really good pick, yeah. Right. Right. But he thinks that he is, you know, like, I am giving up everything for love by not being there on this night. And he's insisting to her that she needs to do the same. And He's only giving up applause. <laughs> right. And it's very much these two men who have decided that the two of them are a dichotomy between love of your craft and love of any person and deciding you know among themselves that they represent this and that they're going to force her to choose between them in what is really a battle between their two egos because the two of them decided that because neither of us can compromise on anything whatsoever we can no longer work together therefore we're going to destroy this third person's life right yeah it's right. it's definitely a huge kind of unspoken thing that like the dichotomy between having a happy personal life and devoting yourself to your craft is not really something she ever acknowledges it's just something she's placed into and it's just well they've made her think this is a choice but she doesn't really think that's what she has to do except right for these two specific dudes it's a, it's a thing where like we see she has she's never thought of this as being a meaningful choice on any kind of philosophical level but they are turning it into a choice she has to make on a practical level they're doing this you know at this high pressure moment where she's in costume and has to decide to go on the stage or like run off and get on a train in literally minutes yeah in literal yeah. minutes where they're going to force her to choose between the two of them so that they can be dueling between themselves of which of them is a better or worthier person on some grand scheme. And the thing is, we're, we're making this movie sound very sort of high art and inaccessible, but it's not. It's actually fairly naturalistic, especially for a movie made 70 years ago. And I watched this movie, and it made me feel stuff, and I like... Not even what the movie expects me to feel, but as, like, secondary things. And I think there's often a remove. When you're dealing with a kind of art that has been removed from your current time, there's always a bit of distance when you approach it. But I can tell you that when they first go to Monte Carlo and they upgrade Vicky's hotel because they are secretly planning to give her the lead role, and Lermontov sends her a note saying, meet me tonight at this location, 7 o'clock. And she thinks... This will be this romantic thing. I am going to be wooed in this way. And so she dresses in what is like 
a Cinderella bell gown with multiple layers and purple petticoats and a tiara, like a literal crown that she is wearing. And she gets there and there's this massive like stone staircase up to this beautiful villa after her taking a car ride and she mounts the staircase and it's a lot longer than you expect it to be. And she gets there and they're all just sitting around in like Capri lounge outfits and they go, oh, hey, yeah, we were going to give you the lead role. So great. That's all we need you for. Thanks. You can go. I got so angry. <laughs> I know, right? 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 Oh. Cussing at the screen. Like, you fuckers. Yeah. You, you, she, she put that whole, dr- and then she goes, and she tries to lie, and she's like, oh, I was on the way to a party when I got your note. And so he goes, well, you should probably skip your party, because you'll need to get up early for rehearsals tomorrow. And she's just like, yeah. Yeah, I will. I will skip my party. My understanding was that she thought that she was being invited to some kind of, like, a a formal affair at this villa yes. that and so she's mm-hmm. she's dressed for like a grand party because she was like told that this is what this event is going to be and then yeah they're just they've made her like go up get all dressed up driver go up these enormous stairs they're all in casual wear tell her one thing and then send her out the door five minutes later and then yeah you should skip your party and just go home and go to bed like, implying, like, she's dressed inappropriately. Like, haha, we tricked also, you, but we're not going to acknowledge that we were trying to. Fucking assholes! Also, the, oh one, thing, the one thing they tell her is, is Lermontov says, we're giving you this part. These are, you know, the other guys. And he specifically says, they are not as convinced as I am, but of course that right. doesn't matter. Yes. And it's like, okay, oh. well, that's not useful information for her, is it? That's just putting, the, you're just psyching her out about how no one actually likes her, but making it clear that. So you better try real hard. Right. Making it clear you've got the part, but just know nobody likes you. <sighs> Bye. Right. Or like, hey, there's a lot of pressure. This is not a, gi- we're going to give you this part, but, you know. Here's some completely useless feedback that will do nothing but make you feel bad about yourself. Right. But, you know, maybe you shouldn't get too comfortable in this role or feel like you've accomplished anything in becoming the prima ballerina of this new show these other guys they're not convinced that you're anything special so you better work hard to really really prove that you are and also feel really grateful to me yeah yeah this is also simultaneously with julian who has been given a book of music that a say another writer wrote in South America when they were there and they've just taken it from him. Yeah. And so he's like, I want you to go in and I want you to rewrite the bits that I've underlined in blue pencil and then come back. Go away. Come back. Yeah. And so he comes back and he plays it. He's playing it for them and they're like, no, no, that's all wrong. He's like, well, I was thinking it could be like this and everyone really likes it. And then Boris gets really mad at him and says, well, why didn't you change that? And he goes, it wasn't underlined with a blue pencil. It doesn't need a blue pencil. Take it and rewrite the whole thing. And Julian, true to his character, went, I kind of already did. Here's the book. Right. Also that they went from, in one scene, he specifically says, oh, it's, it's no hurry, you know, go get some rest. And in the very next scene, he's like, I want it yesterday. Like, it's just constantly moving the goalposts for everyone around yeah. him. Right. No one's ever good enough for him. I want to contrast that scene at the villa with the stairs and the amazing view and everything with the following scene, which I'm pretty sure was built, set in like a 20 foot by 20 foot set that's supposed to be a balcony overlooking the ocean with a train running underneath it. (laughs) Oh, it's bad. (laughs) They're like three feet from the cyclorama. (laughs) It's rough. It's like, 
You guys had how long in Monte Carlo to shoot this? I love that effect where you hear a train whistle and a smokestack passes by yeah. the set. Yeah. It's like, all right, yeah, I can, I, I'm sure I'm looking at a train right now. And you just imagine, like, probably Sergei just walking by with, like, you know, uh, the, the, the pipe producing the smoke uh, in time with the sound. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Yeah. But yeah, it's an, even that in its kind of limited way, it's like they're having the romantic I believe in you conversation and then a huge cloud of smoke as a train goes by. A more puncturing of the romantic ideals. Like there's a bit where Grisha is saying bye to Irina and the train starts to leave because the conversation has taken too long. And I was so happy about that because I hate when people have conversations in front of a train that's about to leave. And I'm like, get on the train. The train's going <laughs> to leave, guys. Yeah. Yeah. And they have to swing him up onto the end of the caboose because he was going to miss it. Right. He's, he's got to run a little <laughs> bit. It's too extra. <laughs> All right. So we probably have time for one more bit of conversation. And I got to address, we've been ha dancing around it <laughs> for most of this conversation let's talk about the performance where the careful orchestra of this movie is kicked down a spiral staircase and things get weird <laughs> oh it's so very good yes yes i remember talking to my best friend whitney who did dance when she was young about how there's this amazing thing that happens in dance movies where they'll do a dance performance on stage but almost inevitably, they end up doing cinematic tricks like instant costume changes and things like that. They do things on the stage that they could not actually do on the stage. Yeah, I'm looking at you center stage. Yeah, this is just like the ultimate expression of that, where they don't care what's possible in the theater at all. And you never really have a full sense of like, how much of this are we to understand as like what the audience is seeing when they go see the red shoes. Cause certainly the beginning and end of it are, but like the stuff in the middle, like, is that what the audience sees or is this like, you know, a dream ballet in Vicky's mind or some combination of the two, but it just works so well to leave that mysterious. It sort of creates the sense of the uncanny that I think makes the movie so much better. Right. It's yes. so, it's so clear and pointedly, ambiguous as to how much of what we're seeing is literal or not. It's a lot like, you know, in Fantasia, where they start off with, like, you're looking at the orchestra, and then the orchestra turns into the abstract shapes, and the abstract shapes turn into other shapes, and now you're in a different place, and you yeah. don't quite notice when it happens. Yeah. Yeah. It felt very much like watching Fantasia, where you watch, you go from a performance into a fantasy that is using, you know, film tricks you had never seen before. <laughs> right. But it's all in a very effective service of communicating the glory and beauty right. of the music and the ballet like, and the performance. Like I was saying earlier that when we first brought it up that like it's this amazing thing where it, it, it's not compromising the strengths of either art form in a way that seems like it shouldn't work as well as it does where it's, it's this whole new thing of like all that, you know, where they, they put her into this fantasy landscape that's clearly like a matte painting, but you can't quite tell where it begins and ends. And the scene where, you know, with the paper, <laughs> yeah. the paper cut out. That's so beautifully done. It's so cool. It becomes Ivan and then goes back to the paper. And then it becomes Ivan with like the paper stuff written on his face. Yeah. Yes. 
Like, he's got, like, de jour, which is the day, written on his forehead, because that's the banner headline of the newspaper, and then he flips back again. Yeah. And, yeah, it's it's great. And the thing is, when it first starts off, I mean, we're seeing what the audience would see, and really where it shifts is when she looks into the store window and sees the red shoes, and you see her reflection, which is her in the red shoes, and that's that. That's, like, it's the first sign. Oh, wait. You know, shit's kind of going sideways in this moment. Right, where we move away from literalism of what would be on the stage and into something that is more representative. It happens so gradually. You don't have a moment of being like, ah, now we are seeing things the audience couldn't possibly be seeing. You don't notice when it first happens. (laughs) When she jumps into the red shoes, which are already on point, and she jumps into them and they lace themselves up and she's instantly on point, which first of all is impossible and secondly would break your feet. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And it's beautiful. Yes. It happens with a snap and it's meant to be unnatural and eerie and it is. But I think it's when, like, it gets to the point that by the time we're ready to have her dive into a cutout in a green scheme where it's projected, then falls into the nether world. <laughs> yeah. You know, where there are Flintstone sex workers hanging off of bone lampshades <laughs> trying to tempt her. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the Flintstone sex workers. The Flintstone <laughs> sex workers in the red shoes, you know. It's great. It's a living. <laughs> That's how you pitch this movie to people who think it. Oh, might. L, you monster. <laughs> oh, my God. So. Amazing. And yes, and throughout where the shoemaker played fantastically by Grisha, he's this kind of literal devil following along, and he briefly turns into Boris, and then briefly turns into Julian, and then back into himself, and then into nothingness. And all the while they're using, is it chroma key they're using, where she's this tiny speck on this, like, 20-story tall matte painting. Yeah, it's it's definitely something. And, of course, this was something I started thinking about sort of in retrospect and when I, like, watched a documentary on it and stuff. Like, you know, with a lot of, you know, what I currently do in my own little projects of, you know, trick photography and tiny sets oh, and yeah. stuff. I did think at one point that she did visit a set from Obsidian. <laughs> like, that was where, like, while watching it, I was immediately just kind of swept away. But then I went to this place and was like, I don't even know how you did this at this time and with this staging where you can't tell where it begins and ends you can't quite tell what's animation and what's live action at one point clearly some of it is a real set and some of it's not and there's that amazing shot where yeah it's just this kind of abstract landscape of like clouds and they're all moving and flowing with this you know beautiful effect and she's the only thing in it that looks real it's yeah it's it was very inspiring so I guess what we're saying is go and see the red shoes. It's good. Yeah. It's real good. I took my mom to it a few years ago when I lived in Chicago. She visited me for Thanksgiving and it happened to be playing on Black Friday at the Gene Siskel Film Center in downtown Chicago. And I was like, hey, mom, we're going to see a uh, more than two hour long movie about ballet from 1948. And she was like, um, if you want to. She ended up enjoying it, and like it's, it is a great movie to see on the big screen. I was certainly one who enjoyed it. Yeah, that way. I'm sure we will get to see it on the big screen eventually with the amazing art house theater we are now fortunate enough to live near. I don't think they've done this one in the couple of years we've lived here, but I'm sure they will eventually, and we will go see it. It's definitely the kind of thing they 
right. they love to do that, there. When they do one of their monthly director series right. or something, it'll show an essential up. cinema they do. Yeah, yeah we, or, or, an, or an essential cinema. Because I would definitely, despite owning the Blu-ray in this gorgeous-looking Blu-ray that we could watch at a time, I would definitely pay to go out and see it on the big screen. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah, when I was waiting to get into the cinema, there was an older lady there. And she was chatting to a young man who I learned later she did not know. It was just another person that she was chatting to in the way of old ladies everywhere. And she was saying that she had seen the movie when she was 10. Oh, man. And she was going to see it again now. And she'd never seen it in the intervening years. And at the end, she kind of hopefully said, I hope it holds up. (laughs) I think it might have. That's adorable. It's amazing. that's, That's a really interesting thing. Again, if you're fortunate enough to get to go to, you know, a revival theater or an art house or whatever where they do regularly throw in a variety of stuff from all throughout the years and different kinds of movies it's really interesting to go when like especially if it like sells out and you're in the middle of an enthusiastic crowd and to kind of hear the varying ages and the varying levels of experience with this kind of stuff like you'll get a bunch of people who are definitely film students from the nearest college and you'll get a bunch of old people who want to see an old movie and you'll get like you know people in the middle who are just like oh i've heard this is good or people who've seen it a bunch of times and want to see it on a big screen it's always really exciting to kind of have that experience that we don't really have with like, you know, first run blockbusters where you, you have that kind of differing sense of experience when you go to a theater. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Any final thoughts? Morishir is very pretty. Yes, that is true. She's great. And she is copper as a new penny under those Technicolor <laughs> cameras. Yeah. She's just shining off of any, this is just sounds like such an odd statement. When they cut to her face in the middle of the Red Shoes Ballet, she is sweating because she is working. Yeah. 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 Also, that like triple winged eyeliner with the red line in the middle and the black line above and below is so good. Oh, it's so good. It's a good look. (laughs) Yeah. That's something I would see one Megan Nielsen wearing. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. Just every part of the design of this movie is just, you know, so on point. Hey. <laughs> All right, that's it. I'm cutting the conversation off at that point. I think JoJo just forcibly closed the podcast. Yeah. Hey. And the curtain falls. <laughs> so if people wanted to find all of your stuff on the internet, let's go through it again. Andrew, let's start with you. Well, you can watch my animated puppet work video series shows at obsidiannationalforest.com or, you know, my name on YouTube. It's all the same. I just try to make it not just be on YouTube so it looks a little more a little more classy. But you can subscribe to me on YouTube, that'd be great, and then watch the stuff there or on obsidianationforest.com. I am on Twitter at Andrew Isla, A-N-D-R-E-W-I-H-L-A, which I mostly just use to kind of put out when I've done something like that. So, you, you know, and sometimes I talk about movies. Those are probably the two things I would be most enthusiastic if you checked out. Oh, and uh, JoJo and I share a Patreon that supports both my video work and her comics work, and we both post lots of behind-the-scenes stuff on there. So if you'd like to support your local independent comics and video artists, we will make it worth your while. Yes. So that's patreon.com slash jojoseems. Mm-hmm. Please also follow me on Twitter at jojoseems and on Instagram at jojoseems. And the hub to all of my work and my portfolio are jojoseems.com that also has all of my comics. That's J-O-J-O-S-E-A-M-E-S. Yes, go and give JoJo money to make art for you. 
Yeah. Many of her pieces are on my walls, and at least one is on my skin. So, highly recommended. <laughs> L, what about you? I'm at another L on uh, Twitter. You can find my writing about pro wrestling at uh, uprocks.com slash pro wrestling. You can find my Sci-Fi Wire movie casting column probably most easily by just searching for L. Collins' Dreamcasting. But it does appear on Sci-Fi Wire usually on Tuesday or Wednesday of the week. It doesn't really have a set day because I am bad at deadlines and they put up with me. <laughs> you can find my various podcast projects at IntuitPodcasts.com. Uh, yeah, if you have liked listening to us talk, you know, this is very much the vibe we have on the show that the three of us do. The Invisible Ray, which again, hasn't had a new episode in several months, but it will when we have time to. <laughs> Well, I'm very much looking forward to that. Thank you, everyone, for coming together. And, you know, I was trying to come up with a better metaphor than that bit on Futurama where Melvar makes the Star Trek cast act out his play. You know, my ship that I love like a woman. But thank you all for coming together and making this episode happen. Thank you for having us. This uh, crossover was an excellent idea, Lucas. Yes. Yes. Thank you for it. This was super fun. (laughs) This has been such an extreme pleasure. Yep. I look forward to all of Joja's art of Grisha. (laughs) It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. (laughs) Thank you very much to Andrew Isla, Al Collins, and Jojo Seams for their time. For the signature cocktail for this episode, I was a little bit torn. The movie is of course very old world and sophisticated, but I wanted to bring a little bit of new world charm to it as well. As a result, I present the Lermontov. In a mixing glass with several large chunks of ice, combine one and a half ounces of bourbon, a quarter ounce of apricot brandy, I use Slibovitz for extra old world appeal, but any brand will do. Add three quarters of an ounce of Punti Mez Extremely Bitter Vermouth. Add a dash of Angostura Bitters and stir to combine. Strain into a coupe glass and serve with a twist of orange peel. A great impression of simplicity can only be achieved by great agony of body and spirit. Or spirits, as the case may be. Enjoy! Math of You is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every second Thursday evening. 
And if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash Lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Or you can pledge as much as you want. Hey, I could add a reward level that's rent out a theater and everyone can come watch the red shoes. That would be a blast. Patrons get bonus cocktail recipes, physical mail, and I would just really appreciate it a whole bunch. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, go to Apple Podcasts in the country of your choice and leave a five-star rating. It helps people find the show. You can also write a review, and if you let me know, I'll read it out. Won't that be nice? If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. Go to bit.ly slash themathofyou, with capitals at the beginning of each word, to find a Spotify playlist with every song I've ever used going all the way back to episode one, including this song. It's The Red Shoes by Kate Bush. It's actually a new version of an old song. She redid it for an album called Director's Cut, and I actually think I like this one better. I update the playlist as soon as the episode goes live, so make sure you subscribe and get new music in your ears. Next week, it's the famed 100th episode, and my very first guest, Margaret H. Willison, will be returning. Join me, won't you? Gonna say, yeah, in the other room, there is a mildly to moderately hungover Kimiko watching a very active toddler at the moment because she had a, a farewell for like one of her work buddies. And her, who, who normally has not had more than one or two drinks at a time since like she was pregnant with my now two year old toddler, had like nine drinks last night. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> so I'm just and, like, she came in at like one o'clock in the morning and I like popped down and I'm like, oh, hey, you're here. You know, I was asleep, but that's fine. You come in whenever you want. And then she's like, I'm going to eat some of the pasta that's in the fridge. I'm like, you do that. <laughs> you have as much as you want. It's completely fine. Please eat food. Yes. Well, I understand that being in that state mixes well with two-year-olds. So. Oh, yeah. Good day for her. She looked at me and rolled over it like before she went to bed and she's like, your podcast is at 930. I'm like, actually, no, it's at nine. And she goes, you're to wake me at 8.55. If you wake me before, I will kill you. <laughs> it's like, all right. It's like a Price is Right game, but you die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and it actually ended up not being an issue. She came down of her own volition at about 25 past 8. So, <laughs> But there was a moment where I was waking up. I'm like, it would be funny, but then I would also die. <laughs> so I have to just weigh up my options. And then when we're ready, I have a segue that'll take us into the joy that is the red shoes, which by the way, I'm just, I just gotta say, I was seeing all of y'all on Twitter come off that and just be like, I love movies, I love art. And I'm just <laughs> like, yes, yes, this is exactly what I felt. I'm so glad. Yeah. Because <laughs> I don't know if y'all know this, but it's it's one of them good ones. It is. It's, it is. it's one of those ones you hear tell about. Yeah. When we watched the remaster and it came up and it's like... Oh yeah, Martin Scorsese was really involved in the remaster of this film. It's important to some important people. (laughs) Martin Scorsese's editor, I want to say, or like an editor who's worked with him many times, was Michael Powell's widow. Oh. Yes. Thelma Schoonmaker 
is like Scorsese's like closest longtime creative partner mm-hmm. who's edited like all of his movies. He actually introduced her to Michael Powell in the late '80s because like you know he wanted to know Michael Powell because he was so inspired by these movies. Of course he did. And they hit it off, and they were married for like the last few years of his life. She was like 30 years younger than him, but like they got married, and he died a few years later. And now Schoonmaker as the widow, and you know a filmmaker editor in her own right. And Scorsese, her creative partner, are, like, kind of the guardians of this entire Powell Pressburger library. It's like, yeah, we're doing this, and we're doing it right. Yep. And I don't give a fuck about the rest of you think. (laughs) (laughs) Is everybody feeling warmed up, or should we chat a little bit longer? I feel good. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've I've been ready to to go from jump. JoJo's ready to light this candle. (laughs) (laughs) let's burn this motherfucker down yeah Yeah. red shoes bitch (laughs) i'm throwing up the horns you can't see because this is an audio recording but i am i don't want to like get ahead of things because i you know we should have some sort of you know chronological structure to our discussion probably but i just want to go ahead and throw this out there okay in the dreamlike and gorgeous ballet sequence that is the centerpiece of the movie oh when shit falls down the stairs yeah that's the one when Vicky Page sees the demonic shoemaker uh-huh. tempting her with the red shoes, and then he becomes Boris Lomurtov, and he becomes Julian Craster, and then she like runs into the void of that united being's body and sort of falls into an abyss, like that doesn't mean anything, right? That's just some trippy <laughs> shit that they wanted to put in the movie. <laughs> Hold on, let me see if there's an ending explained video on YouTube that can answer this for us. Uh. Symbolism is for cowards. <laughs> Just a simple story about a man who hates a ballet. Two forms of, <laughs> the two forms of online internet criticism are, wow, did you know movies mean things sometimes? And also, here's something that definitely did not happen in the movie, but I'm going to tell you all about why it's everything. Or also the pretend innocent question, does anyone really like the red shoes? I'm asking honestly. <laughs> Right. Or that someone will take the red shoes and put it into a glass with vinegar and, and then some maple syrup and then say, shoes get bigger. <laughs> shoes shoe get big. No, no one will get that in like the month after this comes out. <laughs> that meme is going to disappear immediately, but it's going to just enter our lexicon as a thing we all refer to. Like it'll become part of the vocabulary without anybody knowing the source of it after like it a will, week it will mean nothing in two weeks and everything in three years there you yeah. go the dress the big egg that's how it goes <laughs> we'll all talk about big egg syndrome <laughs> big egg energy <laughs> big egg energy oh my god oh this is off to a rollicking start it is syrup me up daddy did we start <laughs> Jojo, you fucking weirdo. <laughs> ah, bless you. <laughs> Speaking of, just like, I was reminded, and I'm like, I feel like this is the right audience to say it to. Um, I have been like working through a bookshelf full of like graphic novels and stuff I bought and went, I'll read that someday. And so I've been slowly working my way through. Excellent. And I got to one which is called Mind Management or Mind MGMT, I think. It's by Matt Kint, and it's a very trippy kind of... I read the first few issues of that when there it was There you go, yeah, out. yeah. So you know. So the trade is, one, gorgeous. Um, it's a big hardcover, and like all the paper is printed on what looks to be like 
government forms or you know the big art sheets that you see that you know finished drawings are delivered on where it's got the blue edging and like writing on the corners and stuff except for the writing at the top is always the same but the writing on the side is actually the alt text for the page of the comic mm. and it's set up like a fake field guide neat and because the whole thing is kind of like a mind screw of like an agency controlling stuff and so it's the field guide for agents and whatever it says is related to what the people are doing that seems innocuous in the book so like you know she's on a plane and she sees someone unpacking luggage and the alt text will be something like capture is considered absolute failure blend in whenever possible as capture is not an option for the organization it's considered the dissolution of an agent and so i'm like okay that's taken the people who are acting chill in the background and made them be like okay they're blending in and part of me admires the craft of that Part of me is also old enough where I'm like, ah, oh, fuck, I've got to turn and read the side of every page now. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I only read the first few issues when it was coming out monthly. Just, just yeah. physically tired. I was like, this comic wants me to do work. <laughs> <laughs> how dare you? I didn't come here for exercise, Kint. <laughs> it's one of those. Yeah, how dare you make me think in addition to making me think, asshole. Exactly. <laughs> I have no time for that. My wrist hurts. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, I was just reminded of that. Um, all right, so we may as well start the show on that wonderful note. The, the one scene, he says, you know, no, no, there's no, there's no rush in doing this rewrite. <laughs> yeah, Hello. sorry, I've just had here a, a naked toddler walk into the room <laughs> and shout at me. He sure did. <laughs> okay, sorry, he's, yeah, sorry, continue, you were oh. saying, Andrew. Yeah, in one scene, uh, when he asked for the rewrite he specifically says oh it's it's no hurry you know go get some rest and then the very next scene he's like i want it yesterday like it's just constantly moving the goalposts for everyone around yeah. him right no one's ever good enough for him also as a side note i want to contrast the scene in the villa with the stairs and the amazing view sorry, sorry you're going to have to so you're going to have to repeat this in a <laughs> When, after Hero, after Hero has had his say. Yeah. I, yes. Hero, can you take this and go into the other room, please? Come on. Go on, go with your mom. <laughs> oh, he really wanted to be in here for a minute. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Um. All right, you were saying. Ask Hero what he thinks about the red shoes. <laughs> he was a fan. 